0: Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Professor Robert McDermott and Michael Lerner. This is part one of a two-part conversation with Professor McDermott titled Philosophy, Spirituality, and Community, A Professor's Journey.
1: Robert McDermott, welcome to the New School. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Robert, uh, you uh, are uh, President Emeritus of the California Institute of Integral Studies and um, a professor of philosophy and religion. Uh, And you've taught at Manhattanville College, um, the Department of Philosophy at Baruch College, City University of New York. You've written uh, remarkable books on Radhakrishna, the Essential Aurobindo, the Essential Steiner, um, an introduction to William James, um, a a new Essential Steiner, which uh, is the one I read. Uh, you edited um, the Bhagavad Gita and the West: the esoteric significance of the Bhagavad Gita and its relation to the Epistles of Saint Paul. Of Paul, and your essays have appeared in in many periodicals. You. Um, have served uh, with many important organizations as an officer, including the American Academy of Religion, Society for Asian and Comparative uh, Philosophy, um, and you uh, co-produced a BBC film, Avatar, Concept and Example, on the Bhagavad Gita and Sri Aurobindo. So I could go on. I think that the the other thing you would want me to say, because it's important, is that you're founding chair of the board of the SOFIA Project, which has two homes in Oakland for mothers and children at risk of homelessness. Um, So I'm grateful that you've come to have this extended conversation (laughs) with us. And I want to start with perhaps the most fundamental question uh, that I think you and I have both wrestled with for many years, which is, what is wisdom? I read an interview <laughs> in which you
2: were struggling with that after your, you were talking about your heart attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my friend Roger Walsh asked me to write an essay on, on wisdom. I said, what? I don't know if I could do that. So it's, it's a very hard topic. Uh, the essay that I wrote really has to do with philosophy, which might or might not be <laughs> the best way in but it's the one that I know a little bit of. Um, Well, uh, from what I remember you're saying when you asked or when you volunteered something about wisdom, uh, it certainly has to do with some combination of uh, deep knowledge and uh, efficacious action. I think some people would think that action is not needed, but... I think you and I both think it is, <laughs> both because if it's really wise, it leads to action, but also unless we're involved with consequences, uh, we won't get any wiser, <laughs> because the, wise, the action is the sort of the, the feedback loop, which enables us to revise uh, what we're thinking as we go along. Um, I think all the cultures have wisdom. There's no culture that owns it. No religion that owns it. Um, And uh, you and I made almost the same sentence without knowing what each other was saying, um, that uh, the West gave up on wisdom pretty long time ago. It did, it did. Probably by the Renaissance.
1: It did. Yeah. And, and particularly, as you've noted, uh, it's virtually absent in Western contemporary philosophy. Completely. To which I would add, it is almost completely absent in Western contemporary psychology. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the concept of wisdom as a term of any power or force is absent from our understanding of the right. laws of psyche. Right and our understanding of uh, the love of knowledge or wisdom. In fact, the very word philosophy, yeah. <laughs> yes. philosophia, the love right. of wisdom in a deep sense, right. no longer contemplates Sophia. Right. Quite remarkable. It is indeed. So it seems to me a central project of yours has been to rediscover philosophy in its most original sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the program
2: uh, in which I teach, uh, uh, the specific program within philosophy and religion is called Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness, mm-hmm. and it, founded by Richard Tarnas, uh, author of Passion of the Western Mind, uh, has wisdom right in the... Um, the mission statement. So we are really trying to recover wisdom in our, in our program. Though interestingly, not many students come to us to study philosophy. Very few, in fact.
1: Well, and that doesn't surprise me, because um, philosophy, at least as most young people understand it, is is an activity of the mind. And we live in a period of time where people want to come from strong emotive uh, positions. And so um, it seems to me that what is much more powerful to the contemporary counterculture are, are dimensions ways of knowing that proceed more clearly from the heart, right? Whereas philosophy appears to proceed from the mind now you and I would both probably argue with that but but I understand why philosophy turns a lot of people off in this particular period of time
2: and uh, nothing more effectively for a good turn off than a philosophy course exactly because the people who teach them are trained to argue right and not trained to seek wisdom mm-hmm. seeking wisdom is really Sort of either have to be ancient or kind of out of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The real hardcore stuff is arguing, Mm -hmm. Um, and most philosophy courses do that.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: It's a little bit; it's good preparation for law school.
1: Now, if we if we trace back this idea of wisdom, uh, you you point out in in your wonderful work on Orabindo that. long before Socrates wrestled with the question of, of what is wisdom, that the Vedic sages were, were asking this. And originally you taught Indian philosophy and so on. So what was the view of wisdom in in the most ancient sources that we have in the in the Vedic uh, uh, sages? And let me add to that. How did Aurobindo reinterpret that? Right. Oh, two good questions. Uh, In the, uh, let's say,
2: the Vedas and the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, so from the 8th or ninth century BC to the 6th or 5th, though the text we have is later, I think the Bhagavad Gita actually happened during that amazing 6th century when everything (laughs) happened except Christianity and Islam. Um,
1: The Axial Age.
2: The Axial Age. um, uh, The... um, Wisdom, I think, and now I reveal my um, commitment to evolution of consciousness. Wisdom then was, uh, let's say, available. (laughs) That uh, the the teachers uh, had access to uh, kind of a divine way of thinking. It's kind of a strong word, but I think there's something to it. They had sacred knowledge. Uh, and it was, it was revealed. It was, they, they were able to intuitive, intuit insights just, I shouldn't say just, but by, uh, by sort of a meditative thinking. So it was almost shamanic, except that it was, um, uh, it had begun to try to solve intellectual, uh, Questions and give explanations in a way that the shaman doesn't usually. Um, uh, So, uh, in these texts, let's say the Upanishads, which are mystical, philosophical, speculative, uh, spiritual texts, um, wisdom really has to do with the relationship between the human and the divine. By by. Uh, Intuitive thinking, Uh, and then once we get into the sort of the AD years, first century, and then and then the Middle Ages and the Renaissance in the West, but also in in India and China, uh, the uh, wisdom seems to be less immediately available. And instead, what's available is the beginning of uh, much stronger commitment to individual thinking, individual thoughts, plurality, uh, complications of all kinds. So the sad part is the loss of shared wisdom, and the positive part is the increase in individuality and um, original thinking. Which we get, of course, in someone like Socrates. So it's a evolution seems to me an evolution and a devolution at the same time. Uh, it's a trade-off. As we get more individual, um, we become slightly more removed from the source, and so it's that it's hard to get back to it. Now, Sri Aurobindo is a great example of somebody who is both modern and. Uh, really had access to ancient wisdom, so he had, uh, just quickly, he was born in Bengal, near Calcutta, then he was educated by, uh, or you could almost say raised by Irish nuns in the Himalayas from age five to seven, then he was in Manchester, England for elementary school, then St. Paul's School, this really elite school in London, uh, and then full scholarship to Cambridge, so all of that Western
1: uh, and and he comes back to India speaking no Indian languages.
2: He had begun to study uh, Sanskrit and uh, uh, Hindi in in, in London England. on a secret with a group of right. uh, etc. Right. He then comes back and he learns all these languages. Right. He becomes a revolutionary. Uh, he becomes uh, an Indian mystic. He's jailed. He has an experience of Krishna. And then he goes to uh, South French India and becomes one of the world class. Philosophical mystics, and oh. he meets a nice Jewish girl from. <laughs> who becomes the mother. She, he, you know, he, meets her, but you could say she comes to visit him.
1: He, she comes to. Visit he didn't him. do any. she, she comes st- back. <laughs> she comes with her husband, a French yes. diplomat. Right. Then they go to Japan for a while. Then she sails back. To, right. Exactly. And they move in together in yeah. an apartment where they live for the rest of their exactly lives together. Exactly. And he believes that she is the sacred mother. Yes. It's not an ordinary story no. at all. <laughs> until I started researching for this conversation, um, until I started researching for this conversation, I did not realize that the mother was a nice Jewish girl from Turkey.
2: So she was, it, it's, it's even more interesting, if I may say, she was a nice Turkish
1: Egyptian Jewish girl. That's right. Uh, Turkish-Egyptian, right. right. Born yeah. in Paris. Born in Paris. And, and raised raised and Catholic. Raised found mystical experiences of her own. Absolutely. She got together yes. with uh, Aurobindo.
2: Yes, and I'm su- as sure as you read, yeah. uh, I'm sure that you've read that when she then went to see who he was then called Aurobindo Ghosh, right, uh, with her husband, the diplomat, right, right. Uh, uh, She said, "Oh, you are the Krishna who you are the one who appeared to me as Krishna in my dream." And he, more or less, said the way New Yorker cartoons would show. He said, "What have you been waiting for? (laughs) I've been waiting for you." (laughs) And then the diplomat went home, and she stayed.
1: Yeah, right. Uh, What a extraordinary story! It really is. And then she, after he he went into seclusion, and then after he died. She ran the whole place. She for did a indeed very long time. Right. Yeah, so.
2: Yes, she was the a the major figure, the Shakti exactly. Right, and exactly. created the ashram and then created Oroville. Right. Right. Exactly. It's a exactly. big, a big
1: story. An extraordinary by any story. standard. So isn't it true that what you just described as evolution and devolution taking place simultaneously, the the movement away from the time of immediate access to sacred knowledge and the increasing Individualization of knowledge, but the sacred knowledge becomes less accessible. Isn't it true, if I read it correctly, that both Steiner and Aurobindo agreed with that dual movement? That's right, I got it. <laughs> They're not agreeing with me, I'm agreeing with that. Yeah,
2: right. right, exactly. Yeah, right, right, right. So, They're similar in that regard.
1: Right. So your published work began with uh, this uh, book on Radhakrishnan, which I won't spend time on, um, which is important. But you, what you, as you describe your work, uh, the 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 big first big encounter, as I understand, was the encounter with Aurobindo. Is that correct? Definitely. Yeah. When did that take place? That took
2: place in the Syracuse University Library in 1969. Hmm. I was on a um, a grant, a national, what was the, a national uh, NDF, a National Defense Language Grant for s- studying Hindi and Indian civilization. For one summer at Syracuse University and one summer in uh, India. And so uh, these, I love these karmic twists. So there were eight weeks and eight different professors. And the first one came in and spoke about uh, Indian politics and uh, the nationalist movement and spoke about uh, this revolutionary named Aurobindo Ghosh who was very influential but then disappeared and then Gandhi took over. I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, This is all new to me, right? And then uh, in the... Uh, Several weeks later, somebody came in to talk about the history of Hinduism, and he then was speaking about the the 20th century and what he called neo-Hinduism with Gandhi and this uh, Sri Aurobindo. I said, well, that's the same name as that other guy. (laughs) So I went up, I said, is that the same guy? And he said, oh, yeah, he was Aurobindo Ghosh when he was a revolutionary, then he was Sri Aurobindo when he was a mystic. I said, well, that's my next book right there. And uh, um, Eric Erickson had just published... uh, Young man. No, no, this is Gandhi's Truth. Oh, Gandhi's Truth. Truth, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I said, what an exciting story. This great revolutionary becomes this great mystic. Um, And so I started to study it next summer when I went to India. Then I went to the ashram and I met all these uh, people who were close to Sri Aurobindo and the mother and and the beginning of Auroville and, and... uh, but I was still uh, being academic about it, not, you know, that <laughs> interested in, in signing up in any way. Uh, but as sometimes happens when you start studying, it becomes more than academic. And next thing you know, I was, you know, I was seriously uh, kind of representing uh, Sri Aurobindo. Not the mother at that point, that was a little scary, uh, as I recall. Uh, but Aurobindo, um, and um, so where are we, uh, you're asking. Uh, that's, so then the next seven years I was involved with that and did be, then begin to really see or experience, whatever you want to say, that they really were some deep spiritual team and that uh, uh I began to think of them as co-avatars, co-rescuers of humanity at a very, very high level. And I haven't changed
1: that opinion. So, and many people have shared that opinion.
2: Uh, Yes, not as many as share the opinion about
1: other people. (laughs) No, I understand that. But it's very interesting to me that um, since a number of my colleagues in... um, the work we do with cancer, uh, Rachel Naomi Remen and Lenore Leffer, were both students of Roberto Assagioli's Psychosynthesis. Right. And the psychosynthesis community held Aurobindo in very high regard. He was one of the people that they that a lot of them studied. So right. I mean, that's a thoughtful community of people. yes. Uh, and uh, having read your essential Aurobindo Uh, and particularly your uh, afterward on him. Um, I understand it. Here's what I want to ask you because this is part of our spiritual biography uh, series. Um, When you say that you became over time convinced that they were trying to save humanity at a very high level and that Aurobindo had access Uh, both to modern thought and to the ancient wisdom. And also in your Steiner work, you talk about how Steiner provided a, a practical approach to people who wanted to develop that higher consciousness. So here are two places where you talk about this not just academically, but in some way, which you don't say too much about, experientially. So my question to you is, um, about the experiential dimension of this, to what degree did you find in your time immersed in Aurobindo and then in your time immersed in Steiner that experientially the truth of Access to this ancient knowledge became accessible to you personally? Great question. Um,
2: So. um,
1: You're trying to figure out how to answer it. I am. Right. And Uh, I respect reticence. (laughs) uh, um, But I needed to ask. it's, It's
2: a great question, an important question. Uh, especially in a biographical series. Right, right. And as you know, I just about six months ago wrote an essay on a karmic autobiography right, exactly. for the course I was teaching on karma and biography. Mm-hmm. I figured if they had to do it, I should do it. It right. uh, wasn't so easy, mm-hmm. and it's still not easy, so right, I'm, right. you know, I'm trying to answer your question accurately. Um, I I wish I had some sort of enlightenment moment or some radical transformation so that there was me until and then different thereafter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to the ashram and stood there in front. Of the mother who appeared and it's called Darshan. And unlike other people around me who were swooning and crying and whatever, uh, I, nothing happened. I mean, nothing. I, th- I said, I must be made of stone. Mm-hmm. All these people are getting this and I'm not getting anything. Um, so there's no such wonderful... Uh, a sort of epiphany. Uh, it was um, it was slow in both cases. The the Aurobindo, I was trying to avoid being a disciple, especially since the disciples, you could say, <laughs> were not my people. <laughs> mm-hmm. They were really um, kind of a cultic dimension, uh, and it was um, it was too devout I mean I'd been a Roman
1: Catholic <laughs> I wasn't looking for another but when just go back for a moment to the Roman Catholic because your mother was deeply, deeply religious. You walked to church with her, what, half mile each way every o, day? A mile or more. A mile or more every right. day.
2: Every day, right. And
1: so she was deeply religious. Yes. Uh, your father never read a book in his life. That's so true. In fact, uh, late in life, he said, how was it that we raised, what, five children? Six, six. Six children, and none of them are Catholic, and only one of them is possibly Christian. Possibly. Don't know <laughs> what kind of <he> is, which <laughs> right. was you. right? Exactly. So, Good memory, Michael. So, right. You didn't Waste your time no, I reading. <laughs> waste my time. Uh, That's good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so so yes. The question about Catholicism: was there a period of time when you had a transcendent experience of Catholicism, or was it more sort of the Catholicism of daily duty?
2: I'm looking for a third alternative. Right. Uh, it, um, so I think with my relationship to Roman Catholicism. Aurobindo and Steiner are probably all the, all similar. Uh-huh. And they're all sort of about my temperament and my way in the world. It, uh, none of them are fabulously dramatic. Mm-hmm. There's no epiphany, wild enlightenment. I you know I I didn't go into the desert and starve for forty days, and I didn't uh, I didn't change my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know I've had the same. Marriage for <laughs> going on fifty years. I've only lived in two cities, three, uh, three institutions. So it's been a pretty steady kind of life. Um, so the Roman Catholic years, uh, I think, were actually quite positive. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned reverence, mm-hmm. which is a deep thing to learn. Uh, I got some sense of uh, the spiritual world of grace. Of uh, uh, consequence matters what we do, what we think. Um, I learned that from both of my parents: my mother pious, my father moral. Um, that um, life is important, and reverence is a good thing. Um, and there's some there's some relationship between the human and the divine that's worth paying attention to. Mm. And then I kind of read myself out of Catholic in college. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, uh, just after two years of graduate school, I was teaching college and I was teaching in a Catholic college, Manhattanville College. Um, Very good college. And then um, I was still in the in the religion question. (laughs) You know what's true, and I was studying Boober, and I was studying beginning to. Stu- I was studying Gandhi, and um, uh, Bhagavan Thomas Berry gave me the Bhagavad Gita when I went to graduate
1: school. And he was a close friend and close married friend. you, and yes, did he do the sacrament with your children? He did indeed. Yeah, right. Yeah, so right. that was a wonderful. So, uh, if you
2: say what was it like to be Catholic? Well, it was, you know, it was my mother, it was older brother, it was Thomas Berry, it was all. You know, it was contextual. It wasn't some brilliant or lonely or amazing situation. It was, it was relational. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it wasn't. Mm-hmm. But not by, you know, I woke up in the night and you know I cursed God or something. Uh, um, it was just slow, mm-hmm. S- uh, slowly leaving because it wasn't um, fulfilling. Mm-hmm. I didn't know then what I know now about you know a certain illness at the core of that particular tradition having to do with women and sex um, but it, I knew enough that I wasn't at home yeah. then so then Aurobindo, I wanted I was an academic a young you know a young professor trying to write and get promoted and get tenure and keep my job and so I said I'm going to write about Aurobindo, uh, not knowing that I would then become a spokesperson for for, his, and for Aurobindo and the mother, uh, there weren't that many people who were professors writing about Aurobindo, and there weren't that many disciples of Aurobindo. Who, so I kind of was kind
1: of catapulted. Uh, so was Aurobindo already in seclusion when you got there, or was he still... sure. He uh, went to seclusion in 1910. Oh, I didn't... In other words, after 1910, nobody saw him except... Uh, the people who came to him. He didn't
2: leave his apartment... For, for 40 years, from 1910 until he died in 1950. But did you ever see him? No. Okay. No, I didn't go there until 1970. Oh, okay. He was already gone. Yeah, 20 years. Okay. Right.
3: Yeah.
2: Right. And other people, of course, experienced
1: his presence, right. and I didn't. Right. No. <laughs> uh, so, and then... And yet, this is a remarkably sympathetic uh, uh, description of Aurobindo, and as you say, you reached the conclusion that he and the mother really... We're trying to save humanity at a very high level, and I you do still think that. believe that? I still, th- I still think that. Yeah. I, I don't have the way some
2: people do this uh, idea that um, there's some um, a, a person is obviously an avatar or not, or that there's only one for the age. And I think there's every kind of gradation. It sort of right. makes my view not so interesting. Uh, but, I think it makes it more interesting. Well, but you,
1: you're a very thoughtful well, person. No, but I mean, I, I happen to believe that. Yeah. Because I believe that there is that spark of the divine in all of us. Yeah. Which gets uncovered uh, as right. it does by life to whatever degree it does. Right. And therefore, all of us, in our radical imperfection, have something of light to offer. Exactly. You know. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And
2: I think Aurobindo and the mother have a lot of light. Right, exactly. and That's co-avatar. And I asked him, are you an avatar? And he said, I don't give a damn about that question. Right, right. Um, I do care about it only because I'm in front of a class teaching, right. and right. I try, try to help students have right. concepts which help figure things out. So I was very, I, I kind of backed in or got pulled in <laughs> to the Aurobindo world, and I was, uh, that was fine and I wrote a lot and did a film uh, with the BBC, and uh, I've stayed friends of all those people. Uh, I, I care about them. If they ask me to do something, I do it. Uh, uh, and then, but, but then, in nineteen seven, spring of 1975, uh, I was led to buy a book f- uh, for my wife, and I went to this funny place on Madison Avenue, and there were 100 books by the same guy i never heard of, uh, two of them on the Bhagavad Gita, and I started reading that, and that was just before I left for England under Fulbright in 1975. And then, while there, I started to read Steiner seriously. And went into the Steiner house. And, and, and I do remember saying, this, this, is, this may be where I belong. Mm-hmm. Because it had all that Aurobindo had. Only instead of having Krishna, uh, it had Christ. Mm-hmm. And it had oh, such practical work, especially education, the Waldorf schools.
0: You're listening to a conversation with Professor Robert McDermott and Michael Lerner.
1: So that's such a great uh, segue, to use a horrible word, into, um, uh, into Steiner. I, I think that your introduction to the new essential Steiner is... Without any doubt, the best thing I've ever read on Steiner, um, because I got introduced to Steiner uh, in about 1983 or 80 something like that, when I, my father had developed cancer and I was traveling around the world looking at alternative cancer therapies, and so. One of the places I stopped was a place called the Lucas Clinic in Alzheim, Switzerland, which was run by anthroposophists. It was one of the, the great, you know, anthroposophical Absolutely. hospitals. And I had heard of Steiner, but I met Rita Le whose husband had founded the Lucas Clinic. And my wife, Charlotte, and I actually did a film of Dr. Le and the Lucas Clinic. And here was this place where, on the one hand, you had all of... Traditional, conventional cancer medicine, but on the other hand, you had this whole anthroposophical vision. So you know, the hospital itself was architecturally anthroposophical, beautiful wooden doors with arches. Uh, The the patients stayed in their uh, in their in their street clothes. They were invited to help each other in the hospital. They came down for dinner to uh, tables set with linen and cloth napkins and so on. Uh, Musicians would play classical music quartets in the halls. (laughs) And the role of the physician, aside from the medical treatment, was the care of the soul of the patient. And it was regarded as the highest and most difficult thing for the physician to do to know what precisely for that individual person would help with the movement of the soul. And I remember Dr. Lois saying, there's this woman here with a terrible cancer, you know, just really terrible, terrible cancer, but she knows that there is a place within her that is completely untouched by this, you know. And so, actually, that experience... With, uh, with this, anth- with the beginnings of the experience of anthroposophical medicine, I began to visit other centers, and to this day have stayed modestly connected with it, and the Bristol Cancer Help Center in Bristol, England, which was started uh, by a, a, an Anglican priest and his wife. Um, were the two inspirations that led me to start the Commonwealth Cancer Health Program. So it comes directly out of both the Steiner work and this Anglican, you know, center. Um, because we decided very early on that we were not going to do medical treatment for people but offer what we hoped was uneducational. And that has been the formative experience of my life, is doing a mm-hmm. 100... and. 90-week-long programs for cancer patients. And, you know, just the, the teaching of of that has been central to me. So, and also I should mention that um, in terms of his contribution to biodynamic horticulture, um, the Commonwealth Garden started as a biodynamic garden uh, with students of... Um, Kira, what's do you remember the name of the wonderful... Alan Chadwick, right, with students of Alan Chadwick's, sure. who was, of course... Uh, at, at Green Gulch. At, at Green Gulch. And, <coughs> and, uh, we, so, so there are these strands um, of uh, anthroposophical experience. And when I, when I think about it, I'd love to hear your list, but there's the Waldorf schools, there's anthroposophical medicine... There's the Camp Hill movement, which is just astonishing, right? Yes. Um, and so there are all these practical places where, uh, what are the other major... <coughs> and money. And money. There's two, two, two volumes
2: of lectures on on the social uh, the social socially responsible use of money. And we're a foundation at
1: the Presidio, but RSF Social Finance. Uh, RSF Social Finance. Mark Fencer, exactly. Yeah. Right. That's so, an extraordinary Yes, it's very important work. So those are four, uh, horticulture, education, uh, anthroposophical medicine, the Camp Hill Movement, and money. It's actually five. Right. What am I missing in terms uh, of practical? Well, the, uh, a lot of the arts, especially eurythmy. Right. Do you do eurythmy here? We don't do eurythmy here, yeah.
2: Uh, Yeah, eurythmy, let me take a minute uh, Mm -hmm. to make the case for eurythmy. Um, So a woman and her her daughter, um, I think she might have been 16, I'm not certain of the age I should, but I don't this minute, um, went to Steiner and said, you're helping all these other people, Uh, uh, and my daughter really wants to be a dancer, but we haven't found the right um, dance for her. Mm-hmm. could you give her something, something deeper? right? Because So when you're dealing with Steiner, um, it's always a question, at least the way I think of it, it's always a question uh, that I want to ask the person who I'm talking to, uh, or the person who's reading what I'm writing, <laughs> how far are you willing to go? <clears throat> so this Steiner didn't say that to the woman, but it seems like that's what, in a certain sense, he was communicating, how far are you willing to go from the physical to something deeper? Because there is deeper. And <coughs> the, he called the deeper etheric or subtle. And so, if, let's, for, let's for a minute assume he really said, how how deep do you want to go? And she said deep. And the girl said, deep, 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 really honest. And then he said, okay, I will give you a movement which is uh, appears to be physical, but it's Actually deeper. Uh, well, what does that mean? Well, that you will be activating your subtle body. Well, how's that going to work? Well, you're going to move. You're going, you're going to move to the quality of sounds, whether poetry or music, in such a way that a, a, a you're going to express a k in a word like kill or kind this way, and you're going to do a duh or a l this way and a. T and, and all of these and the vowels all have the O goes around like that, and, uh, the B uh, each of these sounds has an inner quality which of course is mantra yoga, sacred sounds, OM right, is a, is a sacred sound uh, so Steiner could uh, had access to the inner and the healing, which is why I'd like you to consider this uh, the healing power of sounds which the body then expresses and it's a healing activity. So all the Waldorf schools have a eurythmist or two uh, and all the children do eurythmy for eight or twelve or fourteen years, uh, which on a daily basis is they're building their, their inner power, their subtle body, which is the body that gets sick. And some sickness is in the etheric, some of it is in the soul, and some of it is between the two, some of it is between the etheric and the physical. All these, that's what the, that's what the anthroposophical physician is trying to diagnose. How far in, <laughs> into the essence of the person, uh, is the illness. Um, so eurythmy is one of the arts, but all of the arts that he gave uh, instruction for are all therapeutic. So sculpture uh, or uh, um, clay is is w- works f- for the building of the etheric, and the the getting the 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 movement of the clay to um, uh, to express the the inner uh, quality of the of the material, uh, and the painting and music and, and etc. So we could do one after another, but but his. Uh, contribution to the arts working with artists uh, is is just like the biodynamic and... The, mm-hmm. So it's uh, another major area. Major area. Then he worked with scientists as well. He worked with... Uh, uh, not just on medicine, but uh, uh, he has a le- lectures on light
1: and on w- warmth. Uh, Was Arthur Science inspired by Steiner and Port? Totally. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought.
2: <laughs> Arthur. And he's a good friend of yours. He's a me. good friend yeah, of mine. Right. I had an email from him this morning. His book on light is astonishing. It's amazing. It's, yeah. It is an anthroposophical book. Right. There's only one small chapter on Goethe and Steiner. Mm. But the whole book is, mm. uh, for people who don't know, it's called Catching the Light. The entwined history of light and mind. Z a j o n c. Right. Who? I mean, he he was the head of the Anthroposophical Society, and is now. I don't know if you know this. He's the head of the Mind and Life Institute, which is oh, the institute that yes, does for the Dalai Lama. dialogues, yeah. very close yeah. with the Dalai Lama. Right. So that's a that's a great chapter. I mean, Arthur's life is uh is it right. wonderfully inspiring. Right, um, right now he's. At the same time that he's doing this amazing work, he's also dealing with Parkinson's. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, so he's got a lot, a lot that he's dealing with. Right. Wonderfully.
1: He's a remarkable man.
2: Yeah, he is, he is. Um, so I, I came here about 20 years ago yeah. with him and also with the Fetzer Right, and Fetzer people. Right, and I was just with the Fetzer
1: board Wednesday right. night. You just gave a talk to the Fetzer. Board. I did. Yeah. <laughs> We're going round, uh, round. We're catching which, up which with each other, Michael. Which, We're, if, all of if we our... have a chance, we may talk about that conversation. Uh, but I'd like to stay focused on Steiner here for a bit. You mentioned uh, Goethe, right. and of course, uh, uh, Goethe was a tremendous inspiration for Steiner. Um, you also—I did not know that Steiner said that the seed of anthroposophical thought was also to be found in Emerson. That I did not know. Yeah. And I have a friend named Richard Grossman, who I don't know if you know his work at all. He, wrote a, he just died at the age of 94 or so. He wrote a book called The Dow of Emerson, and his position was that Emerson was a Taoist before the Tao Te Ching was translated. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just interesting to me. I mean, whether you agree with that or not, but the the it's so interesting to me. You know, talk about context. Um, and I was just thinking, one of your favorite philosophers is Alfred North Whitehead, and I don't know his work well, but. I googled Whitehead this morning just to sort of refresh myself on him. And and I'm always so struck. We think of these people like Steiner or Goethe or Jung as these great geniuses that sort of come up out of the mud, but we so rarely have a sense of their context. And, you know, you have such a beautiful sense of... Um, having studied the, the history of, of so much of this, uh, of how intertwined they were, you know, how profoundly intertwined. They were. I mean, Jung and Steiner were contemporaries. They yeah. weren't intertwined, alas. They were not intertwined at all. But shame on both of them. Shame on But do you know this book by Gert, I, I, Gerhard Wehr called I Jung do. and Steiner, The Birth of a New Psychology? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, no, they didn't like each other.
2: Yeah, I don't even I don't even know if it was so yeah it, it, it's a sad story but all of these <laughs> great, all these great figures miss each other right. like you're talking about the entwined actually they're not entwined contemporaneously right they they're
1: entwined with their past yes so Goethe for example perfect example central inspiration for Steiner and Jung claimed that his grandmother, quote, jumped to the side and had an affair with Goethe and that he was actually a biological lineal descendant of Goethe. Right. (laughs) Jung was not a modest
2: person. No, he was not a modest person.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nor was Steiner, though. Although Steiner had a humility, I guess. But, I mean...
2: They both were humble in the presence of the divine.
1: Right, that's true. Uh,
2: Jung was slightly more arrogant than... Uh I don't think Steiner was arrogant.
1: Right.
2: He was really a servant. Right. Uh, I, but Jung was a, uh, a servant of the divine, of the unconscious. Yes. Very, very remarkably. But going back to the Emerson, um, yes, yeah, sure, he's Taoist. He's everything. I mean, Emerson is an enormous, mm-hmm. enormous uncategorizing. Well, he the can great be categorized. American sage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great, yeah. great, great, great sage. And what the the link from Steiner's point of view uh, wasn't that he took anything from Emerson particularly. I don't think he did, he took it off of Goethe, but Emerson read the full 55 volumes of Goethe in German. Right. And there's a dissertation showing so much of what Emerson wrote. He had already read, maybe the day before, but maybe five years before in Goethe. And then he, he gave it an American uh, personal and an American uh, expression. Um, it wasn't just from Goethe; he was for many people. Uh, he was a Did he ever
1: write an essay on Goethe? Was that one? Sorry, did Emerson write an essay on Goethe or not? Yeah,
2: Goethe, yeah. and there's a book called Representative Men. Yeah, I thought it was probably in that. I didn't each, know who it was in Each that. of those figures isn't somebody that Emerson is particularly recommending, though he is recommending Goethe. It's much more that he's saying this this figure is the one who s- uh, summarizes the age,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? So Emerson was a great learner. Mm-hmm. Uh, of all those uh, transcendental people, uh, he was the most scholarly by far. Mm-hmm. But, the, but from Steiner's point of view, the link is that, as I understand it, that Emerson uh, was teaching a new way of thinking, right. and that's what Steiner was doing. Bo- they and both
1: bo- based in nature, both. Um, Or not? Yeah, well. (laughs) Where I'm taking that from is uh, Goethe's ability to look at flowering plants and and fruit bearing trees and the like and to understand in depth what was happening with them. And that he believed that anyone who did that or did it with other objects, but that was his, uh, could begin to build this higher consciousness. Exactly. So what you said, I completely agree with. I I just wanted
2: to be sure that both of us and everybody else understood that when Goethe or Emerson or Steiner say nature, Mm -hmm. they mean the, the exquisite relationship between the physical nature and its inner life. Mm-hmm. And so, what Gert is trying to get people to do is to experience the the uh, essential, the mm-hmm. Uplandsa, the the inner life of the of the plant, mm-hmm. and you can only do that by activating your own inner life. And it's so easy to go from that insight to Steiner saying Anthroposophy is the path of knowledge. To lead the spiritual and the individual, just what Garson was talking about, to the spiritual in the universe. So when we say nature, we're talking about the inner reality of nature, not not looking
1: at the surface. Right. It's yeah. always a deeper level. Steiner. Steiner was also uh, deeply involved. Uh, you say Rudolf Steiner's teachings are continuous with Rosicrucianism, Theosophy, and esoteric. Christianity. Uh, He referred to his particular esoteric teachings as Rosicrucian to emphasize its close relationship to the tradition of deep esoteric knowledge of the human being and hiring beings cultivated first in Egypt, then Greece, and then entwined somewhat with Christianity. Esoteric Christianity refers to the profound spiritual teaching and texts such as the Gospel of John and so forth. Um, And um, And uh, then all of this leads him to his effort to create this as a spiritual science. Um, Going back to the relationship of Steiner and Jung, um, I mean, Jung, for historical reasons, had to masquerade almost as a scientific physician right Um, but that wasn't where his heart was his heart originally was in uh, archaeology and um, and and he and Freud obviously coming up to the study of the psyche in this positivist scientific period you know played in that sandbox or whatever they worked with that sometimes it seems to me that what I don't know that this is a good way to put it but that what annoyed Jung about Steiner was that Steiner was willing to go all the way and Jung felt constrained even though his insights were of the same quality as Steiner I mean you look at the Red Book and the Red Book is a pure example of uh deep, intuitive thinking. So here's Steiner at a time that Jung is trying to defend this as science, calling what he does science, but taking it out to the journeys of the souls, traveling among all the planets and what the soul gets in different planets. And I would read that stuff and I just had no idea what to make of it. I mean, you know, I had no idea how to take that in. So what your introduction did for me was it, it took the, sort of the, I don't know, the, the common sense of Steiner, or at least the essence of Steiner, and outlined in a way that I could finally begin to understand. I'm glad about that. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: so it's, I sometimes think that what Freud dismissed Jung. Right. For the same reason that Jung dismissed, dismissed Steiner. Steiner, right? That's a good way to it's put a good It's another example of how right. far do you want to go? Right. I mean, Freud said to Jung, "Don't disappear into some occult forest right. and, you know, stop your important work and mm. get lost into myths and symbols, play yeah. whatever you right. do. Don't do right. that. The right. sacrifice of a great mind mm. into that weird occult." Uh, nonsense, which mm-hmm. Freud was very interested in, right. of course, uh, and uh, uh, then, of course, the great split came, and uh, Jung did go into the occult, but all the time tried to sort of, as you said, cover, mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, wanting to be accepted as a as a as a doctor and not as some fan of occultism, mm-hmm. even though he's deep into into astrology, into symbols, into UFOs. UFOs, yes, uh, yeah, so many areas that are uh, questionable from uh, the the dominant Western scientific paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, Steiner begins where Jung leaves off and goes further. Uh, and it's um, it's a great drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I mean, Jung is quoted as saying, "Oh, Steiner, he just makes it up." Exactly what Freud said about Jung. Uh, <laughs> So, but young, uh, Snyder didn't think he was making it up. He thought he was doing research.
1: Right. So how do you hold the fact that when you get into these esoteric realms, you have all these people uh, who, who say they have access, but the images they provide of what is in those esoteric realms are different.
2: They are different.
1: They are different. Oh. So how... So, you believe, if I understand you correctly, in the existence of these higher realms. How do you hold the fact that the pictures that are provided by the great esoteric visionaries are so different? Great question. <laughs> you only ask hard questions. Um, so,
2: some people say that um, there's one divine and people use different names. hmm this, to me, is nominalism. In other words, uh, the name doesn't correspond to what's real. It's just these just names that we conjure because we need names. All right. I have an opposite view from that. I think that the the beings are really different. So, if I could do a, it's kind of a homely metaphor, but um, I just thought of it the other night at this. Fetzer, mm-hmm. the somebody said, "Well, uh, you've been talking, you've been talking about all this and this and this and this, but you still haven't defined spiritual." All right. So uh, uh, the truth is, I was trying not to define it because I was trying to describe or characterize something that's extremely plural. All right. So then I came up with this metaphor, which might be helpful. I don't know. Uh, it's next week. I might not like it anymore, but right now. Uh, so how about if we say the, the, the divine or the spiritual realm is an enormous mansion? The and there are people who can find their way to it. Mm-hmm. And when they get there, these great figures go to one or another room. And when they get into the room, they find all kinds of good stuff. Okay, And they then come back and describe it. And some people say, wow, that's really interesting. Some people say, thank you, that's really true. I'm going to try to get there too. Some people say, you're mad. Some people say, this is really dangerous. Uh, All kinds of reactions. And they also say, but this other person who said he got to the spirit mansion found something different. To my mind, they're both right. Some people get to the great Fabulous room with the highest whatever. I think Snyder is one of those, and other people just get maybe to the you know <laughs> to the hallway, <laughs> and, which is like most of us. Uh, and there's all kinds of. Uh, we could push this metaphor and t- kind of make it nuts. So, I think Krishna is real, Buddha is real, Christ is real. I think uh, these little dead people are real. Uh, and some people can contact them, and some people can't. Um, and uh, bodhisattvas are real, and angels are real, and archangels are real, and and Moses is real, and et cetera, et cetera. And so we have all these guides uh, who don't... who agree that it's really hard to get past ordinary thinking to extraordinary thinking. But some of them do it naturally. Some of them do it with great effort. Uh, They all try to give us hints and tips as to how to do it. And so we're kind of... not everybody's trying to do this, but the people who are trying to do it, I think, accumulatively represent
1: a lot of wisdom. That's beautiful. When you said you made up this metaphor came to you, and you don't know if you'll like it next week, and I was thinking, what is the line uh, from the Old Testament about there are many rooms in the mansion? Yes, exactly. There are many Sandy?
3: Rooms in
1: my father's house. My father's <laughs> house.
2: It's, it's, a, it's a New Testament, actually. In oh, Father's Testament. house, there okay. are many mansions. Yeah. yeah. So, so yes. it's the same metaphor. It is. It is. That's <laughs> probably where I got it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm quite sure. <laughs> I've heard that text <laughs> right. many times in my life. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, and although I didn't, I should have said uh, before we're talking about how I read myself out of uh, Catholicism, uh, for the last, what, 15 years or so, uh, my wife and I are members of Grace Cathedral. Mm-hmm. In San Francisco, which is sort of
1: Catholic, mm-hmm. Episcopal,
2: right?
1: Uh, beautiful sacraments, beautiful. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, um, and and you 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 proudly say uh, this brings us to the Fetzer talk. Actually, that some you know the mantra of our time is I'm spiritual but not religious. Right. And you have something to say about it. I, I do. Go ahead, <laughs> I do. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's a little.
2: Uh, caustic, I guess. Uh, it's, it came from impatience uh-huh. uh, because we, I we do caustic here. When I yeah, okay, so when I, I keep hearing this, especially in the you know a place like CIS, where right. uh, uh, people this is it's a kind of a it's kind of a designer school, right? Right, <laughs> right? you know, right. Uh, people are not right learning something so they can right. uh, uh, just get to uh, something. Really practical and get a living and, and live the same life as their parents. It's it has a certain um, elite elite. You had to know you, you had to know some things to get there. Right. All right. And so the fairly widespread attitude is um, spiritual but not religious. Right. And the undercurrent is a religion is for my grandmother or for people someplace who are not educated and we're really educated and so we're spiritual. And my reaction is spiritual is religious except you don't have to show up. Mm-hmm. You can sit on your zafu and be really impressed with yourself, and you can do your meditation. That's really good. Uh, but uh, when you go to a religion, you have got all these all, all these people, uh, and, uh, you and you know, have to deal with them. You have to deal with them. And Alan Jones, the dean of the great cathedral, used to say, uh, "If you know if you're really confused and you're lost, uh, you're probably in the right place, and uh, if." If you really only have an ordinary spiritual life, you're in the right place because that's the rest that's what we have. Uh, and I, I really appreciated that. It, religion is, you know, sort of at base camp. Right. And there are mystics at the top of the mountain. Right. But I really like this idea that the religion prepares the way for the mystic and the mystic pours out into the religion
1: what he or she finds. So... That's such a beautiful place to be. Uh, But let's stay with your... And then I want to take it further. But in your notes on this, um, uh, you have, you know, the, the spirituality, the positive is the emphasis on individual responsibility, avoids negative history. The shadow, spiritual is religious without having to show up. Elitist isolationist. In other words, that by being, quote, spiritual... Uh, you don't necessarily have a community of practice. Mostly you know. don't. Yeah, you don't necessarily have a... Com- and then, you know, uh, you know religion uh, has the historical traditions, institutions, communities, dogmas, and myths, symbols, liturgies, but its shadow is dogmatism and exclusivism. Uh, isn't it interesting? Isolation is the spiritual illness... And exclusivism is the religious illness. And But, you know, I wanted to ask you, because one of the the people I haven't seen you mention is the the traditionalist school oh, yeah. of René Guenon and Fritjof right. Schoen. And I've been reading uh, the traditionalist school for a long time. Uh-huh. And I, I got to it from a complete... I spent about two years completely fascinated with Ibn Arabi, which led me to the traditionalists, René Ganoff, Ritchoff, Schoen, the whole tradition. So in what you find here, and I also found it in Brother David Steindelrast, is this, this understanding that, as you say, the prophet takes this molten hot material and pours it out, and then a shell forms around it, which becomes the exoteric. Yeah.
0: You're listening to a conversation with Professor Robert McDermott and Michael Lerner.
1: And so, according to Sean and Ganon, all civilizations are created around these original prophetic insights, and then the shell becomes the exoteric, which has the dogmas and all that stuff. And that the fate of the civilization depends on how skillfully the people in charge of the shell treat the contemporary mystics who go for the central insight. Because so often, take the Sufis as a good example, they are persecuted by the dogmatic uh, Islamists sure. uh, because they see the universal quality uh, of of the original teaching. Right. And it seems to me that's a pretty fundamental potential insight. I wonder how you see it. That's, yeah, you've, you've really given a good... A good description of it
2: of the that part of the traditionalist position, um, which I'm which I'm very close to. Um, so I do believe there are these great figures, right. um, and they are either the mystical or the esoteric, and the religion is mostly not, mm-hmm. uh, and community or tribal. Uh, tribal can be in a good sense or in a bad sense or both. Um, so we have that much in common. I'm, I don't spend a lot of time with Shuan and Ganon, or for that matter, um, uh, Gurdjieff and Jacob Needleman and, mm-hmm. and Mo, uh, Houston Smith uh, are in the traditionalist dimension of their thought uh, because I'm very devoted to history and to community and, um, the, and evolution. And the traditionalists are not.
1: Oh, that's very interesting.
2: They're not. And mm-hmm. I think it's, um, I don't know whether you want to say it's luxurious or it's missing something crucial, but uh, uh, this is my Jewish-Christian dimension, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> is that I'm really devoted to history. Uh, and in, in what sense? I mean that uh, religion is, and, and spirituality both, uh, and, and, and these high figures we were talking about, I think that Aurobindo understood, understood the time and he tried to bring something that was right for the time. He wasn't just repeating the Upanishads; he was he was
1: educated in Hegelian philosophy in Cambridge. So he bring- and, and took the side of the allies. At the point in World War II, when the Indian government wanted to be with the the fascists. I don't know any government, but yes, some did. Some yeah. certainly
2: did. And Gandhi, of course, wanted totally out and be nonviolent. And right. Aurobindo was saying, Gandhi is such a silly little man, you don't understand history. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I'm with Aurobindo there. Mm-hmm. I'm with Gandhi for other reasons, but on that point, yeah. I'm with I'm with uh, uh, with Aurobindo. So Aurobindo, Steiner, Teilhard, uh these figures are really devoted to uh, what Steiner calls a sense of the time, mm-hmm. and what what is the task of the time, and what needs to be done, and the traditionalists are very impressed with the uh, unchanging character of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I'm not. I'm, that's
1: fascinating. I'm, that's I'm really devoted to the evolution of wisdom. that's helpful to me. And and you you point out in your introduction uh, to Steiner, it, gently, but you do point it out that uh, you think that. Steiner himself would be disappointed in some of his followers who stick to sort of the letter of what he said when what you really believe in is the spirit of Steiner's work. And so there's this continuing historic renewal of what, what are the demands of the time. I think that's true. Yeah. Steiner
2: said over and over and over again, please do not believe anything I'm saying. Find out for yourself. Right. That said... Right. I don't really blame the people who repeat what he said mm-hmm. as though it were eternal because mm-hmm. he was way ahead of his
1: time and we don't have his capacity. I'm just curious whether you annoy a significant number of the Steiner people with your <laughs> evolutionary view of Steiner. I'm just cu- honestly yeah, yeah, curious. Arthur yeah. um, Zions and I are kind of in the same situation
2: uh-huh. where many, many people who are grateful for us or want us to be mm-hmm. sort of louder and more influential. Mm-hmm. And there are other people who are, I consider to be fundamentalists right. and who uh, make it hard for people to find Steiner mm-hmm. because as soon as you run into that, you flee, mm-hmm. just like I was experiencing with the Aurobindo community. Mm-hmm. Um, so author is uh, there are people who dealing with... Uh, Author and his work with the Dalai Lama, who may not even know that he's an anthroposophist. In mm-hmm. the meantime, he's steeped in, in Steiner's mm-hmm. um, teachings and practice, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's. Uh, I think Steiner would like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think. Right. I think. I mean, he was interested in everything. Right. Uh, right. He wasn't interested in. On the other hand, I have to be complete about Steiner. It's quite complex. On the other hand, he did create. Both a exoteric community and an esoteric community, mm-hmm. for, for to do the research that he started, mm-hmm. but not, you know, to worship him, mm-hmm. or to just repeat what he said. To do the to do the research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you get into it, uh, it's so vast and so deep that it can be confining. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to branch out on your own, and mm-hmm. uh, when you've just read this volume where he's talking about all these things you couldn't possibly know on your own. So it's kind of overwhelming. So I sympathize with the people who do that, but I think it's also Mm -hmm. um, not good for Steiner or Anthroposophy or or themselves to to be so um, sort of fundamentalist
1: in their relationship. You know, one of the actually starting points in your introduction. You say the word anthroposophy refers to spiritual knowledge gained by the conscious integration of three disciplines, thinking, feeling, and willing. Mm -hmm. And um, that was so fascinating to me because before I read that, I had been working through for myself this thinking, feeling, willing in a whole series of traditions. So for example you are well aware, uh, in, in yoga. Right. Uh, you know, the traditions of jnana uh, uh, yoga, bhakti yoga, and karma yoga. For exactly. Um, and as a matter of fact, I was curious on that point. In one place you speak of the three yogas that are worked out in the Bhagavad Gita, and in another place you speak of the four yogas. I know. So those are three. <laughs> and I assume the fourth is contemplative? Yes. Okay. So what is the, would that be, what would be, is that raja yoga? Or? Yes. Okay, so the four yogas that are working themselves out are bhakti, Jnana, karma, and raja yoga. Right. Knowledge, action, love, and meditation. And med- And raja stands for meditation. Yes. I always thought of raja as the integration of all the branches of yoga. Is that correct?
2: Yes, people who like raja, say that it's the integration of all the... Actually, but, okay. but people who like bhakti uh, <laughs> say that no, it's all about love. Right. It's knowledge as love, it's action as love, right. it's love as love, and meditation as love. Okay. I think actually I, I've resisted this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm not sure why. I don't think it was too smart of me. Uh, but my good friend Will Keepen has really convinced me that love is... is clearly the ultimate.
1: Well, and Steiner certainly says that. Yeah. Uh, There's a passage that I got in my own reading somewhere where Steiner says there are three great forces in the world, love, uh, love, wisdom, and will. And God is pure love. And progress depends On wisdom and will, but God is pure love. Right. So, what what I kept finding the you know I know you know this, but I just found it on my own before I found it here, is that that triad of love, wisdom, and will you know, truth, beauty, goodness, the three yogas, so on and so forth, that you look in all these different places. And what are they? They are the work of the heart, the head, and the hand. Yes. Right? So it's kind of biologically built into us that we have these three yogas, right? Right. The world's old schools
2: have as their motto head, heart, and hand. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean... There's a fast literature on the Bhagavad Gita talking about the three yogas okay. and without talking about meditation. So mm-hmm. people say, well, it must be all three. Um, I th- I think maybe we should say there are four. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, we have our choice uh, about which one is the dominant one. And I think if you're a philosopher, you probably think it's knowledge. And if you're an activist, like Gandhi, you say it's it's karma yoga action. Mm-hmm. And if you're, a, you know, a heart devotional uh, loving-type person, it's bhakti. And if you're a meditator, you say, no, 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 it's really Raja Yoga, the royal road. And they all have a pretty good case going for them. Uh, and uh, it, it just seems to me that um, we're all better at one than another, uh, but ultimately, we have to get them together. Because mm-hmm. if, if you don't have... If you're running around changing the world and you don't have knowledge... Gandhi could have used a little more knowledge Mm -hmm. at some points Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, um, one of the in your essay on wisdom um, you talk about three dimensions of uh, a real philosophy uh, if I've got this right ontology epistemology and ethics is that right? ontology as I understand is what we believe we know epistemology is how we believe we know and ethics is how we put it into action. Right. You then go on to say that you are going to take the position on ethics of a virtue ethics. Right. Um, and you talk about the integration of different forms of ethics, including uh, the Kantian you know, imper- categorical imperative. You know. Uh, you know. Sort of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. you and you know, act as if it were going to be a universal law. And then you say, but that turns out to be impossible. And then you have the kind of empirical tradition of William James act in terms of what the consequences are in context. So, um, then you point out from Steiner and elsewhere that Steiner says for every step forward in spiritual life, you need two steps forward in ethical development, right? And that in the... In, in Buddhism the you know and and the Hindu traditions, the ethical is is there and central so here's my question um, I think that most people have trouble being good all the time. I think that is a widespread reality <laughs> yeah, I would think <laughs> Jacob Needleman, in fact, wrote that book called Why Can't We... Why Can't We Be Good, All right. right. Okay. So, sometimes when I read you and I think back to James Hillman and I think back to Ficino and the Middle Ages and so on, and we think of the distinction between soul and spirit, which was the classical distinction, which I believe Steiner includes, doesn't it? Oh, yes. It? Yeah. yeah. That the soul is that multifaceted part of us that's close to the body and... Yeah intervenes, is the connecting point between yeah. spirit and body, right? Yeah, yeah. That's it's, how the, it's, it's, the, it's like the personality. It's the personality. Yeah. <clears throat> and the spirit soars up into these wonderful abstractions of, you know, treat everybody as you would wish to be treated and these ideals, right? And the soul's down here stuck in the muck of how we actually live, right? So, But when I read you, it feels to me like I can't be as good as you need me to be. Maybe it's your just Catholic Really <laughs> the character that you describe as important. But I'm just not that good. And so when I think about myself and my colleagues at Commonweal and most of the people I know in the world who do good work, what fascinates me is we do good work in spite of the fact that we're so radically imperfect, you know? we do good work in spite of the fact we're, we're deeply human and and in fact being deeply human connects us to all the chakras in a way that enables the energy of being human to express and when i read you what i seem to get more of is up with the spirit the kind of transcendent movement uh, you act ethically because you've got good character and you are experiencing spiritual consciousness and you sort of, you're moving up in that direction. At one point, you talk about James's distinction between the healthy soul and the sick soul, and you say, you know, I was just born with a healthy soul. I'm that kind of person, and you don't dismiss all that can be learned from the sick soul. But I'm just curious whether I'm reading you wrong or not, because it seems to me your direction is more forcefully up than uh, with James Hillman and with uh, so much of us who deal with wow. being human all the time. I'm fascinated because <laughs> we're always fascinated by anybody yeah. who's paying attention to yeah. us, right? right. Yeah.
2: Uh, my, my friend Rick Tarnas says he's never met anybody who disbelieved in astrology who wasn't interested in having right? Right. <laughs> his natal chart read. Right. Uh, so, of course, I'm interested in what you're saying. Uh, and I'm a little surprised. By it, and I'm trying to think of how did I give you this? By how I read you? Uh, no, I'm, 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 I'm surprised. But yes, I, because I completely agreed with your description oh, okay. Okay. of of how you are. I'm the same way. Oh, okay, well then, and, I'm misreading you. no, no, no. I think I'm misrepresenting, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to think of how I managed to to give this impression that isn't quite accurate. Not I, I don't think I even want to give it, partly because it's not accurate. Uh, uh, and that is, I guess, I'm trying to make a case uh, for these people who are count against our uh, paradigm, mm-hmm. and trying to say, no, 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 wait a minute, there really are beings. <laughs> there really is, you know, an active spiritual dimension, the way Jung says. The the the, uh, the these myths and symbols are active. Right. I'm trying to make that case, and I may be. Going on as though I warrant a person deeply mired. Well, like everybody else, almost everybody else in money, sex, and power. Right. In fact, the other night at this uh, uh, Fetzer talk, mm-hmm. uh, a, a board member said, "Well, this is all very interesting, but I'd like to know from you what you know. Where are you in all this, and what are you able or not able to do? Mm-hmm. And is it hard?" And I said. I'm no better than anybody else, and probably not as good as a lot of people, certainly not as good as my wife, who always wants to be good, and I often say, no, I don't want to be that good. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm, I'm, I'm
1: with you. Um, uh, well, that's so, helpful to me. Because sorry? I, 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 I First of all, I didn't read your essay on money, sex, and power. I didn't get that. By the way, just for the record... The, your website, on if you Google Robert McDermott, California Institute of Integral Studies, there's a whole bunch of wonderful interviews and essays, and so I read a bunch of them, but I didn't get the money yeah, in
2: section. Yeah, yeah, you get the the um, yeah. Michael Krasny Award for good preparation. <laughs> I have to say, you, I think you know more about what I've written than I than I do. Uh, you know, I am I am a. Uh, uh, I would be more naughty if I had the nerve. You know, I mean, I'm just—I mean, I'm—I'm I'm, I'm just a boy trying to get away with it. You know, I mean, I'm just, and, uh, and I just don't have the the, the nerve or the smarts. Uh-huh. Actually, I, I would get caught. I would get caught in a day. I just don't have, you know, that kind of cleverness. Uh-huh. You know, I'm just kind of a, just uh, not quite an innocent. But uh, I don't think I'd be all that good at being. Good, big time bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm I, I'm <laughs> I'm selfish and and, uh, and clever and and fearful and
1: trying to make You're my. You're human. I'm human. Just yeah. You know, Satyadananda, Swami Sachidananda, who also called his yoga like Aurobindo, integral yoga, and yes. it's been noted that there are very deep uh, parallels. Yes. And in fact, I was a student of sachidananda's for many years. So, ah, interesting. So that connected. you chose well. Excuse me? He's a good one. He was a good one, yeah. Absolutely. You know, imperfect, like everybody else, but but interestingly.
2: And we're differently imperfect. Some people have trouble with money,
1: some people have trouble with sex, some people with power. Right. Right. But he had a beautiful line. I think about him in relationship to Aurobindo because they were so different and yet their yogas are so similar. But he had a beautiful line that if you try to work with pure gold, it won't hold its shape. You need to mix in some baser metals in order to make a ring or make anything that will hold its shape. And what he meant by that was that all of us as human beings, we need the baser metals in order to be effective. And you and I have both had careers in administering schools or nonprofits or whatever. And in order to do that work, you just can't be all sweetness and light. It just doesn't work, you know. You're dealing with all the realities of life. And and so, I guess what is my consolation for being so imperfect is that I know I'm useful, you know. So anyway, that has been a consolation for me. I'm glad we straightened this out. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally, yeah. I mean,
2: you know, uh, I, I would like to think that when I was forcing... The laying off of a third of the faculty and a third of the staff yeah. that I was being I was doing karma yoga in the most mm-hmm. pure and objective way mm-hmm. but I actually had quite a few favorites mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some people I really didn't like mm-hmm. and I was rooting for some and opposing mm-hmm. others mm-hmm. And, and wishing I didn't have those thoughts and I was and mm-hmm. yeah that's of course a very real thing yeah yeah and if, we're, we're, if if you if you go into power yeah you know you've got hard choices that's right And there's very seldom that you can do something that's completely clean. And we pay taxes, right? We have if we have a retirement fund, we have a portfolio, which Mm -hmm. most of which is going to 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 companies that
1: we don't approve of doing work that's destroying the earth and Mm -hmm. destroying poor people. Mm -hmm. So we are. Well, that's very helpful to me because because, and I think where I got it was you are so clear when you write about Steiner that you buy in, you're buy you not just reporting on, you buy into, in a fundamental way, with both Steiner and Aurobindo, as you've said, the belief that these extraordinary beings have achieved a higher consciousness, that these things are real, as you said. On the one hand, you're an academic. On the other hand, you're saying, these things are real. And not only that, but Steiner says that if you proceed in the following way, you can get there too. And in fact, Aurobindo says
2: But I'm that. not there where they are. Right. I'm a student. Of and both. And I missed that. <laughs> I'm glad we got it straight out, Michael. And I'm going to be careful not to mislead anybody. I am a student. In fact, one of the things that I'm unhappy about mm-hmm. in dealing with and yeah. co-op, working with anthroposophists is that I find that some people, in quoting Steiner, give the impression that they know what Steiner knows the way Steiner knows it. And I
1: believe they don't. And I'm absolutely clear that I don't. Okay, that's very helpful. I've noticed, having been around ashrams and the like, is that the people, that many people who try to outrun their headlights spiritually, that try to be more advanced than they actually are, there's often an anemic quality about them. There is a quality that they've gotten so into this spiritual place that they try to ignore that they are embodied, you know? Right. Uh, I mean, Plotinus obviously was a perfect example of this. He detested his body. Right. You know, His body was an embarrassment to yep. him. On the one hand, he created this transcendent tradition of neoplatonic thought, which was a huge contribution. On the other hand, the detestation of the body is not only not good for the body, but uh, it may lead um, to a lack of awareness of the body of the earth. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I once was
2: uh, contracted to write a book on seven sages. Right. Right. And I was determined to have at least two women. Right. So I spent a lot of time. Reading and thinking about and writing about Simone Weil. Yes. In the end, I gave up the contract
1: because mm-hmm. I did not want to have a spiritual teacher who hated her body and died of starvation trying to live on. Exactly. What the Nazis were feeding the French. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. So I said, no, this is not. You know, like you know, they, uh, uh,
2: some people said when uh, 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 you know Palin was, was was the vice presidential candidate. They said we didn't wait 250 years for this. Mm-hmm. Well. We didn't. We need women spiritual teachers. And Simone Veil was an amazing figure. Yeah. But that that is a discounter for me. Mm -hmm. We have to be spiritual and moral Mm -hmm. with our
1: bodies. Mm -hmm. I want to open it up to questions and comments here. Any thoughts, reflections? Did somebody raise a hand? Please say your name when. Somebody in the back, Michael? Yeah,
3: Mimi. Well, <clears throat> we were talking just a while. Excuse Mimi
1: Calpastri for that.
3: Excuse me for yeah. the allergy going. I don't have a cold. You're talking about character as opposed to the higher spirit, and then you're using the word soul, and you started using those words interchangeably, and I wonder if you could say more, if you see them that way.
1: That's a great question. So the words character, soul... Uh, are we using them uh, interchangeably? How are you using them?
2: A uh, uh, character came up, I think, because we were talking about virtue ethics. Right. So I, I said there's Kantian ethics, which is, has a certain truth to it. And then there's um, um, sort of utilitarian, pragmatic ethics, has to do with something true about that too, I think. Mm. And then I said, but finally, uh, I really settled on uh, virtue ethics, which comes from Aristotle mm-hmm. um, and which says basically um, we can't figure out very well exactly what a virtue is or what a vir- virtuous deed in a certain situation in a general sort of uh, uh, systematic way, but we have a pretty good idea of a virtuous person mm-hmm. and that is has to do with the formation of a character who just kind of Automatically, naturally, is, has the wisdom and the will <laughs> and the, the mm-hmm. determination to do what is right. Mm-hmm. So, and I, so I think that's where we settle. Now, where you put the soul in all that, uh, I don't know. I think it's probably at the level of soul that we're talking. I mean, character and soul are probably at the same level, if, even if they're not synonymous.
1: I, Mimi, would you agree with that? Would you use character and soul interchangeably?
3: I think, I think more of soul as helping create the character. Uh-huh. That there's that that kind of level. Mm-hmm. that The character is, is learning about ethical. The character is both what could be called good and bad, but actually is just ignorant or knowledgeable. And I, I think of the soul as perhaps the teacher. And that's I that was going to be my next question. Is the soul kind of a teacher in that aspect to help develop Character.
1: So the it's question just, is: Is the soul a, a teacher of character? A
3: guide, God. personal body guide. You know, a guide here rather than a guide
2: there. Um, I think I'm all right with it, but uh, I haven't thought of um, some problem. Uh, um, I I do think that uh, the soul, as Michael was saying before, is related to the sort of ordinary physical life, but it's also connected to something deeper, divine, spiritual, whatever. And, uh, And it has a history. And so it, It seeks out situations and relationships, uh, teachers, lovers, friends, books, uh, that enable the whole person to develop. And how that person develops, I think we give the name character.
3: When when you mention history, are you speaking of the karma?
2: Karma I, I, is, is very big in my thinking, and Steiner and Aurobindo, and um, Teilhard doesn't use the term, but um, Christians generally don't uh, use the term. But I, it applies
3: reincarnation, and these days they don't accept
2: it. Yeah, you don't need to do reincarnation for karma, though I'm happy to. Um, um, so this is a whole big topic
1: uh, when,
2: whenever you want to get around to it.
1: Yeah, well, maybe we'll do that after the break here. Um, there's so many places we could go here, but just to stay with Mimi's question about the relationship of character and soul. Um, James Hillman's last book, I think, or one of his later books, which is an extraordinary book. It's called uh, The Force of Character and the Lasting Life. I've not read it. And, um, and I'm trying to think about how Hillman uses it. So, um, he, you know, Hillman calls his theory of psychology the acorn theory that, you know, that, and he, he gives many examples of, that we seem to be born with this character that unfolds in the course of a lifetime. He just gives many examples of extraordinary people who from very early on had amazing musical capacities or mathematical or whatever it is that seem to have been baked with the cake in some fundamental way. And so what I don't know is when Hillman talks about character that way, whether he means soul, because his whole... Archetypal psychology is a soul-based psychology, which is, in fact, I think, too rejecting of spirit. Me too. In other words, I I think what Hillman did when he got fired as program director of the Jung Institute and went to the Warburg uh, uh, Center in London and discovered Ficino and all these incredible images and realized he had found what he needed, which was a pre-Freud and Jung basis to create an archetypal psychology... Um, and made Ficino this extraordinary Neoplatonic right. uh, Renaissance figure, who right. you know, into his sort of core person. Um, I don't. I don't. And I don't. And Ficino was obviously a representative of what we've been th- talking about: the soul as intermediary between the spirit and the body. I don't know how Hillman treats the relationship of soul and character. Do you know? In dreams, in dream work, one of the things he
3: said, and I don't know if it was when I was had a personal conversation or when it was, I read it, but right. it was about, in dreams we start looking at not, for instance, animals, with people with this totem animal sort of thing. We don't just look at, what it is, that? what story are they bringing us, what aid are they bringing us, what power are right. they bringing but what are they asking from us? Because what are they asking from us? What are we asking for? And there is, that they're an aspect from this higher, you didn't use the word spirit, but higher place, and so that's, uh, because in reading this, the same, the force of character there, there is a confusion, I think, Between is he talking about the character, like a crotchety old character, or a very graceful old character, or a Hmm. a person with grace? I mean, there was either of those are acceptable beneath that, or the soul. So that's why I ask you this question, because I think maybe there was. And you
1: said you didn't. I I hear you saying you don't have a formed opinion on the relationship of character and soul. Is that correct?
2: And and, and not this minute. Um, Okay. I do. I. I guess. Um, I, I could work it out, but I'm, I'm stuck a little bit because I think of soul, and in, in relation as a as a term for the for the structure of the human being, mm-hmm. and I think of character as a term for uh, our relationships. So, so they're not. I mean, they're clearly related, but they're not, to my mind, not totally coextensive or they're not
1: doing the same job. Right. It seems to me as we talk about it, the character expresses whatever integration we have or have achieved between body, soul, and spirit in relationship that makes sense to you me know, that's how i would use it yeah that's yeah yeah so but, yeah, we agree to but that but here's the question i wanted to ask you robert is um, because you believe in the soul having a history after death when you say people have contact with with the dead as steiner believes as Aurobindo believes um, do soul and spirit stay together after death, after they leave the body, or do they go to different places? In other words, what, when you speak of contact, is it soul or spirit or both? Right. I, I want, now I'm going to be
2: careful and explicit. Right. This is not something I know. Right. <laughs> this, you, is something, heard. this is something I have read many right. times right. Uh, and thought about many right. times. Right. And according to Steiner, right. who seems to make sense on this right. topic, uh, 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 that the, the soul is uh, 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 has a specific life after it communicates its experience to spirit it dissolves and spirit goes on and is uh-huh. reborn
1: so that's beautiful so soul after it communicates its experience to spirit right dissolves right and then spirit is what is reborn yes so spirit the reborn spirit is informed by the, yeah. the, the soul. Yes. How fascinating. And, and an additional part, because we were just talking about
2: three parts, right. body, soul, spirit. But Steiner has a very important uh, uh, part between the body and the soul, mm-hmm. and that's the subtle body. Remember before we were talking about the etheric, mm-hmm. the, the eurythmy and the arts and, and, mm-hmm. and biodynamic uh, agriculture is really dealing with the etheric.
1: Now, did the etheric layer exist in Plato, in Plotinus, in Ficino, or is that Steiner's contribution? That's a good question.
2: It's 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 deep in in Goethe. Is it in see in? Plotin it's in Goethe. I, yeah. Yes, for sure. In Plotinus and Plato. See, I think Plato really is a dualist. Uh, and Plotinus really worked out the four categories. I, I don't know that there's... The f- which four categories? The four levels. The, the, the one, the, the noose, and then soul, right. which might be closer to etheric. I'm not okay. sure how to okay. do that. And then the material, which is not quite real. Um, so uh, we'd have to... It's partly a terminological problem. Right. I think soul is probably close to what we mean by etheric, but I'm
1: not sure. I'd I mean, soul has been used in so many so ways. So many different ways. Yeah, that's really so right. many different ways. Well, let's take a break for a little bit. So thank you all for being here.
0: You've been listening to a conversation with Professor Robert McDermott and Michael Lerner. This is part one of a two-part conversation with Professor McDermott titled Philosophy, Spirituality, and Community. A Professor's Journey. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein, our audio engineer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Port O'Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.